Our family has this game, Story Cubes. Has anyone played this game before? Yeah, someone back there? Yeah, Story Cubes. It's, uh, it's got nine cubes in there, and, and each one has a series of pictures on the side. So you, you roll the, the dice, and then you, you make a story up. In fact, would someone just want to demonstrate with just three cubes? I'll just uh, grab three at random here. Sounds like Candace wants to come up. <laughs> she gave me that look. All right, so. All right, so starting with Once Upon a Time. I don't know what that thing is. I'm going to go like that. There you go. Once Upon a Time, Robin Hood. Because there's an arrow. He walked along the shore of the forest and realized he was barefoot. There you go. <laughs> You're a good sport. You're a good sport. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <coughs> yeah, so supposedly, math people, there's nine cubes and they are, there's over 10 million combinations of stories that you can tell with these things. Um, and, you know, so when you, when you first see these cubes, it's like seemingly endless possibilities, right? Um, but upon, uh, upon further inspection, I see two limiting factors as I think about that l line of reasoning with the story cubes. First, the prompts aren't quite as random as they appear. Uh, your story is kind of locked in because of these prescribed prompts that you get. Like, Candace had to deal with an arrow and a barefoot and a cell phone. Those are the, the pictures that she got, right? And so while it's true that you and I could both roll a sheep, right, and I could have my sheep in my story do stand-up comedy, and you could have your sheep be like the leader of an underground animal intelligence organization or something like that. Like, we, we both still have to deal with sheep. That was given to us, right? But even more foundational, there's this sort of sub-story that transcends the cubes, it's almost as if whatever cubes we get or whatever circumstances we get, there's always going to be some kind of story that we either want to tell or are impelled to tell. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, we were playing this game in the car, uh, and just, just previously to that, um, Samara had been infatuated with these squirrels in our backyard. I was doing my prayer time in the morning, and we would go in the backyard, and she would snuggle up with me, and these two squirrels would always come to our yard, and they would climb up in the kid's tree fort, and it was just so hilarious that we'd like get on our yellow slide, and you know, their claws don't work on the yellow slide, and so they're like this, and she would just giggle and laugh, and so no matter what story cube she was getting on our road trip, the squirrels always made it into the story. It was like, she's just, whatever you want to call that, predestination or, or, or inevitability or whatever is going on, it was going to have a squirrel in it. And there's a sense in which when we really slow down and think about our lives and how they play out, that our lives are much more than the sum, than the mere sum of our choices and our decisions. You, you ever feel like that in life? Like, like you're taking the lead and you're making the choices and you keep up ending in the same cul-de-sacs and the same dead ends, and the same storylines. 
And, and it's not just our individual stories that tend to do this. It's the world story. Like humans have been at this life thing for a long time now. And we have histories of what hasn't worked for a long time now. Every generation, it seems like we have the promise of new knowledge and new technology that people didn't have before, and yet we continue to seemingly do more harm than good in, on the global scale. We, as a species, as a people, haven't found salvation, haven't found our own wholeness. We haven't found the answer or peace or whatever you want to call it. We haven't solved the problem of sin. And that's the left to our own devices, best efforts, human history that we have. Of course, that's not the whole story. I mean, that's why we're in church, right? Like, that's not, that's not the whole story. This, the story of Scripture tells us refreshingly good news. The Bible tells us that despite all of our jumbled up storylines, that God has a bigger story he's telling, a life-giving and life-affirming story. And the best part is that through faith in Jesus, our dead-end, frustrating storylines can be melded into this life-giving story of God. The ancient prophets spoke of this sort of language when they, when they said things like, the end of the age, or the new Jerusalem, or the messianic age, or the time of restoration. Jesus inaugurated this new age of God's story sucking us into his story um, when he did his ministry on earth in the first century AD. And the book of Acts gives witness to how that story of God and the power of the resurrected Jesus was unleashed upon the earth to bring good news to every single person who would trust in the Lord. Way back in winter time of this year, we started walking through the book of Acts together, and we took a break for Lent uh, right when we were in chapter 3 of Acts. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, and he enters into this heavenly dimension, signaling his vindication over death and his sovereignty or his rule over all creation. And then in Acts 2, we witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who began undoing the curses in Genesis. So like where humans were once split apart from God due to sin, through faith in Jesus, we can be brought together in intimate communion with God. So intimate that he now dwells in the hearts of people who follow him, right? And where humans were once split off from each other after conspiring to make their own name at the Tower of Babel, rather than trusting in the living God, Acts chapter 2 gives an account of the Holy Spirit enabling people from around the world to hear the gospel of Jesus in their own heart language. Acts 1 and 2 give a sweeping, image-laden witness of, what, um, of this new age of Christ who has dawned on the earth. But in chapter 3, the focus narrows to a very particular story. A man who was lame from birth, begging for money at the gate of the temple, a practice he would have repeated most days of most of his life. Similarly, on that same day, there's the arrival of Peter and John going to the temple at three in the afternoon for daily prayer. It's what they did on a normal day in their normal life. If their lives 
were story cubes, they were getting the same prompts. They were locked into their routines. The beggar had no earthly hope for his situation to change. He could get money to keep himself alive. He didn't have hope that his ankles were going to be repaired after all those years. Peter and John were filled with the life of Jesus, but they probably never thought they were doing anything other than just going to pray at the temple. That's what they did at three. But then something happened, see? God's story took the storyline of the beggar and his lame feet and his hopeless future and all of it and the storylines of Peter and John and their assumptions and their plans and he drew them both into his story, into a new realm of new possibilities. The power of God was unleashed through the disciples of Jesus, Peter and John, and the lame man was healed instantly and he leapt with joy. And as the story continues, we see the crowds who are in that temple now paying attention. And they are in awe about what was happening. And they were wondering what kind of guys Peter and John were who could do this sort of thing. And it's at this moment that the focus shifts from one isolated event to the meaning of the event. It was wonderful that through the power of Jesus, a man's life was completely transformed for the better. But even more importantly... And the point of this chapter is that it was Jesus who had done the healing. The same Jesus that the crowds had had been complicit in crucifying just a couple months earlier is the one who's doing this healing in front of them. And this is profoundly good news for those crowds and profoundly good news for us. The healing of the lame man at the temple isn't just some event that happened a long time ago. It means something. And what it means, as we will see, is that through faith in Jesus, our broken and frustrating and sometimes embarrassing and shameful stories can not only be redeemed, but they can be molded and fitted into the story of God. We're going to pick up the story now in Acts 3, chapter or verses 17 through 26. If we're able to stand, please do. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled those things. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every, every one of you from your wicked ways. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> so from the outset, we see Peter reaching out with an olive branch 
toward his Jewish brothers and sisters. Most of us, most of us go a little bit easier on someone if they, you know, did something wrong against us, but they didn't mean to, you know, like they're ignorant of it. Like, um, it's one thing if, uh, you know, your significant other smacks you in their sleep, right? Like just a wayward arm, and it's another thing if they, you know, hit you in the face. That's a, uh, I, I, it was an accident, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, the, the same was true in the ancient world that the law was harsher on people who did things illegally on purpose rather than by accident. And Peter is saying, listen, you were part of that crowd that were complicit in Jesus's crucifixion, but you didn't really know what you were doing. Like, had you realized who Jesus really was at the time, that would be a completely different ballgame. You wouldn't have made the same mistake. And this is from the lips of a man who knew firsthand about ignorance. Peter did not really know the extent of Jesus's identity until after the resurrection. When he denied Jesus three times, Peter was acting out of fear and ignorance, not out of a place of knowledge. But here's the thing about ignorance. It still carries consequences. When I was a kindergartner, I went to Hoquiam Elementary School. Now, you know where Hoquiam is? It's out there, right? It's like by Aberdeen, um, but worse. And, um, and then, I, but I lived 22 miles away from Hoquiam in a place called Hump Tulips, for real. That's the name of it. And I lived on a fish hatchery. And, and so that's a long way, 22-mile commute for a five-year-old. And one day, my little five-year-old self was asleep on the bus. Um, we were going from elementary school back home to Hump Tulips. And so I'm on the bus. I must have fallen asleep, and I slid down in my seat so that when I awoke, I was so freaked out. I was back at the bus barn, and then the bus driver saw me, and he was freaked out. And and. That was just the situation, right? What caused me to miss my stop? Ignorance, accident, a lack of concentration, a betrayal by my own body for falling asleep. (laughs) In the end, see, it didn't really matter what the reason was in the end. The consequence was the same. I was 22 miles from home in a musty smelling gross bus barn office waiting for my mom who had to come get me now after, you know, 22 miles away. Despite how I got there, I needed rescuing all the same. And and that's how sin works. That's how brokenness works. There are consequences that we have amassed such a debt that we we can't repay it. We, We need rescue, like we're in trouble. And these crowds are all gathered in awe and wonder about this man who had been lame but now is jumping around. And what Peter is saying is that Jesus is the one who did it. And in your ignorance, and I know you're ignorant, you rejected Jesus, but this shows you that he is the one that the prophets were talking about. He's the deliverer. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you think you're waiting for. He's here. And he came for you. He came for you. Peter says this in this text. He came first for you, my Jewish brothers and sisters. This is extremely important that we hear this in our current climate as a nation and as a people. Jesus came to save the world, but his story is deeply rooted in Israel's story. He's not some new character who shows up out of nowhere in the first century. Jesus is the culmination of all that was promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David. He is the beginning of the fulfillment of all God spoke through the prophets about new creation and shalom over the land. 
And he came first to the Jewish people and then to the rest of us. And later in the book of Acts, when you have the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, even when he's in Gentile country, he goes first to the synagogues. And then when he's rejected, if he's rejected there, he goes to the Gentiles. These are important details because anti-Semitism remains an ugly reality. It is a blight on our country, just like any form of racism. And anti-Semitism from self-proclaimed Christians, in my view, is one of the ugliest forms of it. Just last week, a man who was part of an Orthodox Presbyterian church shot up a synagogue on Passover, killed a person, and wounded three others. And in an article from The Independent, we read, in a seven-page letter by a person identifying himself as Mr. Ernest, he allegedly used several anti-Semitic tropes to explain his motives, including the claim that Jewish people were guilty for killing Jesus Christ and the belief in a white genocide conspiracy theory. Now, thankfully, this guy's own church condemned his actions and his ideology, but something else really bothered me about how this story and others like it are being reported. Because it's being referred to as a form of Christian extremism. I think that category is fundamentally flawed. Extremism is an amplified version of an original. Okay, so to, to just lighten the mood for a moment, consider these normal Seahawk fans. Cute couple. And then this would be an extreme version of, right? So it's like, the, you can tell that those are Seahawk fans, they're just more, right? They're just more of the same thing, right? And, and you can see that like in mountain biking, you've got a, a regular mountain biker, and then you've got like Tim Erfel, right? Like extreme mountain biker. Okay, now to bring it back to a little more seriousness. So if you take a Christian, one who is a student of the master Jesus, a man who, by the way, was Jewish and had Jewish disciples, a savior who fulfilled the prophecies given to Israel and then rose and restored those in his inner circle who betrayed him. If you take a Christian, one who was the disciple of the master Jesus, a man who turned the other cheek when his enemies struck him, who in the times of a torturous death on the cross called on his father to forgive the people who were doing that to him, who promised his disciples, I will judge the world so you don't have to, i.e. you don't get to, if you take a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, and you make them an extremist, you get Mother Teresa, you get an Apostle Paul, you get an Oscar Romero or a Nelson Mandela, but you don't end up with a twisted, hate-filled, bigoted murderer. That is not Christian extremism, that's discipleship of the evil one. Do you see the difference? There is nothing from Christian scripture or theology that gets us from here to an extreme version of anti-Semitism or really anti-any racial group or subgroup. Do you hear what I'm saying? Amen. Christians may differ in our theology about the future role of Israel. That's a weird topic. As a nation, as a political state, that's not what I'm talking about. But no follower of Jesus can have a foundation in Scripture for hating Jews or any other group for any other designation, period. We're not called to hate. We are so white sometimes here. Come on. <laughs> what it comes down to is that we all need rescuing. 
And that is what Peter's point is here. Whether by ignorance or outright rebellion, and most likely a gross mixture of both, all people have sinned and fall short of this glory of God, the glory that we are born to embody. Now, let's just step back for a minute, because I know, even as I was writing this and thinking this through, every time we talk about falling short of this glory of God, and we talk about sin, that's Christianese, right? And our minds is like, oh yeah, I know this from childhood, and what it means is I'm a sinner, and I need God, and my mind turns off. It's the part where the pastor or the scripture talks about sin and our debt and how we can't pay it and how God pays it, blah, blah, blah. But think of it this way. We were created to reflect the glorious nature of God, right? We are made in his image, every single one of us. And our stories, our lives should reflect that glory. But whenever you get honest with people about their real lives, you come to understand that every single one of us feels like we're missing something. That it's just not quite right. That it's not quite fulfilling as we think it ought to be. And we've done some great things, probably, hopefully. Like, I know a lot of you, you've done a lot of great things. But we've also left a trail of regret, regrets and consequences and pain. And we haven't just dealt with our story cubes. Like we haven't only had to deal with the hand that was dealt to us, have we? We've got this underlying thing, this story, this current that, that bends us directions we don't always want to go. We wonder, why do we think those thoughts? They're ugly. I'm embarrassed by them. Why do we do those things or not do those things that we want to do? That's sin. That's sin. It's like a disease that pulls us down, influencing us to be less than we are made to be. So here's another way to think of it. I remember traveling in Europe with Corey and being so impressed with like some of these mega train stations, like just the logistics of how how all that works, right? Um, massive amounts of, of tracks coming together in these huge hubs. And when we sort out our lives, it feels like, like when we start out and we're young, like we can go anywhere. There's all of these stops available to us, all these places we can go. But as life goes on and we're honest with our situation, it seems like we end up, all of us, at the same station, and if left to our own devices, the consequences of our choices lead us to like this massive hub that's a dead end, like there's no trains out of it. This is glass and concrete, and the trains come in, but our sins have limited our choices to nothing. We're stuck, and we can't get out, and that's not feeling like life anymore. Maybe you've felt that stuckness before. And Peter is saying that just as Jesus took the dead-end storyline of the lame beggar, just as he created a new story out of the impossibility, so he can bring new possibilities, new life, where there was previously dead ends to us all. The solution is Jesus, and the ticket is to catch the Jesus train, and that, that's repentance. It's the invitation to confess, hey, the way I've been doing things hasn't worked for me. Like that's the real PC way of saying I've sinned. That's the, it's really the same thing. Me being king of my own life hasn't worked out for me and a lot of other people that I, I mess up along the way. And so 
I'm placing my trust in Jesus who can make a way for me where it seems impossible in my own strength. Repentance is putting our trust or our faith in Jesus as the one who can take all the broken, dead-end storylines and meld them together into this life-giving, life-affirming story. Now, I know that it's May the 4th be with you weekend. I'm dressed the part, all that jazz. But there's an obvious Harry Potter reference here, right? Like platform nine and three quarters. Like when you, you think you're at this dead end and all of a sudden Jesus is like, no, check this out. Just have faith. Just like grab onto me and I will take you through the wall that you've built for yourself. See, left to our own devices, we're stuck in a dead-end train station, but Jesus opens up these new possibilities where it looks like an impossible brick wall we can pass through holding on to Christ. And those, those um, new possibilities have three very positive implications, and here's the payoff if you're getting bored. First, Peter says that when we turn toward Jesus, when we confess our sin and turn away from it, we can get on that J train, that Jesus train, right? Our sins are wiped away. The word in Greek is blotted out, erased from a ledger, forgiven, eradicated. Second, repentance is hard. It is hard to change a habit. I mean, that's why so many people like, I know smoking is killing me. It's really hard to quit. Like, why? It's not because it's the smart thing to do. It's just hard. Like, re repentance from any rut habit that we formed is hard to do. And, and Peter encourages us, though, and he reminds us that with repentance comes not only a wiping away of sin, but also this time of refreshing. And so I was thinking about it in terms of hard things that we do oftentimes that have a payoff. Like this summer, we did this long hike with our family, 15 miles or something in the summer. It was hot and ran out of water too early. And um, oh, my feet were just aching from carrying Samaria at the end. I will never forget, I, I don't think, I say that now, um, I will never forget how good the lake felt when I took my boots off and put my feet in it. It was a time of refreshing. Like with a hard thing, there's a refreshing that comes at the end. If you've ever pushed hard to accomplish like a degree program or a certificate program or a, you know something professional hurdle that you had to go through, it's hard work. But, but there's a time of refreshing at the end where you, you, you celebrate with people that you love and and you let your shoulders down, and you probably get sick for a week because you've had your guard. Anyway, you know all that stuff, but there's refreshing that comes at the end. And when we begin to trust Jesus more and more, when we die to selfishness and receive more of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it refreshing when we experience more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those those things that, that Jesus produces in us are so much more refreshing than the old sinful ruts and our old comfortable behaviors. And third, and by far the biggest point of this chapter three portion is that through God's plan of restoration, it's all been put into motion. Uh, with Christ, it is the end game, if you will. I couldn't resist um, Thank you. Um, the prophets and the people of God looked forward to a time when God's reign would come in full, when, when the creation and when our bodies, when our economies and our society would all be made new and would actually work. Like, you know, 
Apple, like their kind of mantra, it just works. I, I love Apple stuff. It doesn't always work. Like I want, I, like we always want a world that works. Hearts that work correctly, brains that don't betray us, bodies that don't fall asleep when you're on the, you know, what I mean? it's like we live really in a world of betrayal and, and letdowns and the new creation is one where things work right, both our wills and our hearts and our bodies and our world. And Jesus shows us a glimpse, a preview of what this is like in his resurrection body. And that is what is to come for all who place our faith in him. And, and this is why that's good news. Hearts rightly ordered toward Jesus, bodies that work better than we could have imagined, life will work. And because of this new creation, because of this promise of a new world that's coming, we can feel free to start living into that world now. I want to just leave with a couple questions that I've been wrestling with because if this is true, then I shouldn't be so afraid. If this is true, then I shouldn't be so worried about the earthly things, right? So here's a couple questions to, to wrestle with with me. What have you been dreaming of doing for God or others, but your fears hold you back? You know, there's good news that we don't have to fear. There is a new reality coming, and failure here or now, it doesn't shape that future. That future's coming. It's guaranteed. So if we're going to fail big for God, why are we afraid of that? I'm asking myself that question too. Second, what sacrifice are you thinking of making but the lure of comfort and fear of scarcity keeps you subdued? Like there's no scarcity in God's kingdom economy. We can't outgive them. We might go to the grave poor people, but his kingdom is full Those are things I think about, and maybe you have some of your own questions. If this is true, if this reality, this promise of new creation, new body, new everything is true, why am I so stuck and lost? Let's pray. Lord, once again, we thank you for your faithfulness in preserving this good word for us that there is gospel in every story. And as always, Lord, we pray that you would take this information and by the power of your spirit cause transformation in our hearts. Lord, help us to do more than amass knowledge, but to be more fully human, more fully like Christ. Pray that you would break through our fears, our doubts, our insecurities, that you would help us overcome and repent of our sin, that we could experience a time of refreshing on the way to new creation.